Well, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Heart. And the subtitle is What Treasures Are in Your Heart? Now, the first question that we need to consider is, well, what is this heart that we are referring to, and how important is it? So we'll consider this for a while. The Old Testament refers to two hearts in man. And it says, the fools follow the one on the left, and the wise follow the one on the right. The heart on the left is obviously the physical heart, and the heart on the right is the spiritual heart or the spiritual center of man. Now, it's not actually physically located in the body, so if any of you is tempted to go home this evening and open up your chest, on the right-hand side you will not find a heart there. However, it can be experienced there. So, if you ask, and we make it a little boy, and you say to him, who ran to the shops? He doesn't point to his legs to answer who ran to the shops. If you ask another boy, who answered the question? He doesn't point to his head. When you're asked who did this, you say, I did this. And you point to your heart, to your spiritual heart, because it is your very essence. Everybody points to here when referring to himself. Now, what is the true purpose of this heart? And it is to love God. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as a jealous God, i.e., he doesn't want you loving anything else except him. In the New Testament, man is warned that he cannot serve God and mammon. The first commandment tells him to love the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. And the various traditions state that the essence or soul or self or the most valuable part of man resides in the heart. It is said that the heart is the place which has an empty space within it, wherein the light of the absolute or God reflects itself. In the Bible again, it says the kingdom of heaven is within you. Where within you? In the heart. In the Bhagavad Gita, from the East, Lord Sri Krishna says, I, the Self, am seated in the hearts of all. Now, the heart is closer to the essence of man than the mind is, and the mind cannot go there. It does not understand the heart. Faith is essential to get to the heart. What the mind says in words the heart says in silence. Now, this heart is an instrument, just as the mind and the body are. And just as the mind and the body have states, the heart also has states. Now, the pure state of the heart is still perfect and complete. It's like still water. It has no agitation, just like the face of someone in deep sleep. And it must be clean 
or pure to reflect fully the soul or self of man. If clean, everything about the being is clean. If muddy, everything about the being is muddy. From the heart, the mind gets its force or strength. The mind has no strength of its own. So if we take a simple example, whatever you love, the mind can attend to. If you don't love it, the mind will not attend to it. Now, it just so happens that I love rugby, and I can watch two matches in a row. And afterwards, I can describe moves in immense detail. I can't watch cricket for five minutes, because I have no love for cricket. And this is why you would be amazed that they can attend to things that you cannot attend to. Why? Because they love them. All the strength of the mind comes from the heart. Now the pure heart is fluid. Nothing leaves a mark in it. In the impure heart, the events of life do leave marks on the heart. And if this happens, it receives further knowledge deformed by the mark. So again, for example, if you, as a young child, you were bitten by a dog, and this was uh, not a minor event in your life, not only will it leave an imprint on your leg, it will leave an imprint in your heart. And every time you meet a dog after that, you will meet the dog with a preconception. I, your knowledge of the dog will be deformed by what happened to you as a child. An effect of this storing experiences or marks in the heart is that habits form and then they dominate. We even do what we know to be untrue or unreasonable. So, for example, it becomes evident to us that we need to go on a diet or something like this and we make this amazing promise that Biscuits will never pass these lips again, ever. We announce it to the world to give us extra strength. And two weeks later, we find a plate of biscuits staring at us, and we're staring at the biscuits. And so we consume them. And afterwards, we're filled with regret. Because we cannot be true to ourselves because of the habits formed in the heart. And the heart needs to be pure. Only the pure in heart will see God. Not some absentee God, but the God which resides everywhere in the hearts of all beings. In every religion, there are two basic principles. There is the ideal to be realized, and there is the method of this realization. And in Christianity, the ideal is God, and the method is purity of heart. Now, if we want to have a little test as to see how pure our hearts are, what you do is you try to think of God and see how long the mind can remain with that. You see, some of you have failed already. Now, the mind soon wanders into other thoughts. Distractions or inconstancy is the measure of impurity in the heart.
the essential quality of love is that it is constant. An important point to note is this. The heart is not a storehouse for feelings. It is the medium to express love, to power the whole human being, and in fact to power the entire creation. And as it says in the Bible, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Now, what do we treasure? Because that's what we store in our hearts. We only store what we treasure in our hearts or what we consider to be treasure in our hearts. And the question is, are they worthy of storing in a heart? And as I said, if we store them in the heart, then they are treasure for us. So let us think for a moment of what we store in our hearts on a day-to-day -day basis. We store resentment, hatred at times, anger, self-pity, guilt, depression, grief, anxiety, jealousy, irritation, worry, impatience, sadness, regret, hurts. We actually nurse our offenses in case they would die on us. All of this we deem valuable, so we store them in our hearts. How much complaining is there compared to how much praise? If somebody was to record your speech for a day, how much complaining would there be compared to how much praise? Note how none of these exhibit constancy. Thus they are not part of the natural state of the heart. They are a burden to the heart. Now there's so much concern today about pollution in the world. But a far greater concern is the internal pollution. The polluting of our hearts with all these disturbances, it has a far greater effect on our lives. Now, if this is so obvious, that none of this has any benefit in our lives, but actually causes us great misery, why do we carry it all in our hearts? And there's a story to illustrate this. It's not the complete answer but it does indicate something. And some of you may have heard the story before. It's about a man walking across the desert and he's got a big sack, a big heavy sack on his back. And this sack burdens him down as he tries to cross the desert. But he continues to carry it. And as always happens in these stories, a wise man comes by on a horse and he says to the man, Show me what you're carrying in that sack. And the man opens it, and it's all rubbish. And he says to the man, why don't you put it down? And the man says, it's all that I have. Some people only have arthritis, incurable arthritis. 
I met a man who was so proud of his heart attack. And he showed me the pills he had to take. And he was proud of this. It was a very serious heart attack. This wasn't any little old heart attack. This was a very big heart attack. He loved his heart attack. It gave him an identity. He could claim to have had a worse heart attack than the vast majority of mankind and live to tell the tale. So we will carry this rubbish. It's all that we have. Now what causes the heart to function falsely? Well, there's basically only one choice for the heart. Either it can be fueled by love, act as a medium of love with its only purpose to give to all unconditionally, fulfilling the will of the Absolute or God, i.e. bliss for everybody. And if so, it will be still and open and peaceful. Or it can be fueled by desire. And if so, it will claim, arrogate to itself, become attached to the things and people of the world, and it will then seek my happiness, or at the best, the happiness of me and mine. It will be ever agitated and never satisfied. Now there are natural desires, such as hunger and thirst and safety and all these things, and these do not make the heart impure because they are part of the natural makeup. But there are other desires which we foster. They are of a stronger nature. We develop a great fancy for something for which we are willing to go to any length. It becomes an ambition, a mission or a crusade. And without the fulfillment of these, we cannot stop. Has anybody in this room got enough? Is anybody ready to stop? Do you know anybody who has enough? How does desire arise? Well, desire is the direct product of identifying oneself with or attaching oneself to an individual, an object, or an environment. Desire initially draws the heart out from the divine into the creation and then causes it to turn inwards again for inner or personal considerations. So it moves from the universal to the particular and back to the personal. Without desire, it would be moved by love from the universal within to the universal without and back to the universal within again. Now, desire cuts both ways. If indiscriminately fulfilled, it produces attachment, which then causes the desire to present itself over and over again. If, on the other hand, desire is suppressed, 
The result is simply anger and resentment which cloud and confuse the heart. It's a no-win situation. Either way, desires produce disharmony. Desires burn up energy, leaving the individual exhausted. Love, on the other hand, powers the action to completion and leaves the individual full of energy. And how is this so? It is so because love is limitless and inexhaustible. The world appears indispensable only to the man bound to it by attachment. He thinks, I cannot do without this and I cannot do without that. The ego feeds off desire. Where there are no desire, there will be no ego. Now, desire goes when we're not in a state of want. And this is an interesting point to note, that wealth is not the possession of what we desire. Wealth is the absence of wants. Most of us only enjoy true wealth when we're in deep sleep, because we want for nothing. With desire or attachment comes the longing for re-experience. We want it again and again and again. We want to prolong it. This is not the case with the child. And if I can give a, an example or an indicatory example of this, which I've used before, a father, a friend of mine, was coming home from work one day. As he came through the uh, front gates, one of his children was upstairs at the window and saw her father. And she was immensely excited that the father returned. So she was virtually scraping the window with happiness and delight that her father was returning home. And this filled his heart with joy because he'd had a rough day at the office and here he was loved by someone unconditionally. And as he walked towards the door and passed out of the view of the girl, he imagined in his mind that as he opened the door, this little being would be running down the stairs and flinging itself into his arms and declaring undying love for him. Anyway, as he opened the door, there was complete silence. <laughs> right? so, with a slightly disappointed attitude, he went upstairs to see where his daughter was and he opened the door and she had her back to the door and she didn't even look around. She was just playing away happily with something. He had wanted it to go on. She was fully satisfied. Thus, in a life of indulgence, of the desires, there is strain and not rest. There is volatility and not equanimity. And there is excitement and not peace. The state of our heart is a reflection of the desires we harbour in it. Love melts the heart and desires harden the heart. And again, an important point to note, the harder the heart, the weaker it is. Again, in the New Testament, Jesus had spoken about that no man put asunder what God has joined when referring to marriage. 
And he was asked by the crowd, why then did Moses allow for divorce? And Jesus answered, because of the hardness of your hearts. I.e. that the hearts were so weak that they couldn't obey the highest law. Interestingly, the ego often hardens the heart deliberately as a defense against hurt and disappointment and offense and all these things. The effect, however, is that the hardened heart, being a weaker heart, becomes more easily subject to hurt and disappointment and offense. And because the heart is hardened, it can then be marked by the events of life, thus distorting its responses to events which arise in the future. The only possibilities for the hardened heart are to become a frozen heart, a broken heart, a mean or small heart, a closed heart, or on the other side of the equation, a sentimental heart, which through acceptance, without discrimination, lets the world descend into a farce. Now, how are we to know at any point in time whether it is desire or love fueling our heart? The sure sign that it is desire operating in the heart is the ability of it to turn into its opposite at the flick of a switch. So, for example, you are completely and utterly in love. You have arranged to meet your beloved at the precise moment of three o'clock, which is when the big hand is vertical and the other one is pointing to the right. And you look forward to this so you can be in the company of your beloved. And it's now five past three. And then it's ten past three. And this love turns into rage, or the so-called love turns into rage. Well, if a love can turn into rage, then it is not love. Desire turns into rage when it is frustrated. But love doesn't. Real love does not make you suffer. It cannot make you suffer. It can only produce happiness. Desire, on the other hand, can produce happiness with a small h and misery with a capital M. As desire causes the heart to be impure, so desirelessness leads to the true functioning of the heart. What is desirelessness? It is simply love. Detachment from desires releases our true nature to express itself, which is free from any want. Desirelessness is the key to fearlessness and therefore to a full, limitless life. And the heart seeks to be true to itself, so it seeks constancy and fullness. Even the impure heart seeks constancy in its possessions and fullness of possessions. 
It wants security of title to its house. It wants contracts of employment to its labours. And it wants everything. But possessions are limited and they are transient. So in essence, all desires are for fullness, but cannot and do not yield fullness. The constancy that the heart seeks is only found in love. Love opens the heart, and with an open heart, the need of the moment is appreciated, and knowledge naturally arises to meet the need. And this open heart results in true compassion. This allows one to respond to the needs of others without being affected by the suffering of others. And this not being affected by the suffering of others leaves one in the best state to help the other. And if one's heart opens in this way, then the prayer of the wise becomes our prayer, which is all be happy, all be without disease, all creatures have well-being, and none be in misery of any sort. They may not be on your lips from moment to moment, but they will motivate each and every action you undertake. Then our speech is truthful, immediate, and unrehearsed. It reveals fully our inner world and comes from the very center of our being. Then the events of life are like ripples on the water. They have momentary appearance and they disappear to leave no mark. Thus we are ever free to move on unaffected by the past. Nothing is feared, nothing is repetitive, all is new and ever interesting. And with this pure heart, an open heart, you do see God everywhere. You see the God which resides in every heart. And as Jesus said, whomsoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. Then all of life is seen as a play. It can be serious or playful, but never burdensome and never causing misery. And seeing that which resides in all beings and seeing life as a play, the open heart is a big heart. And being big-hearted, one lives a big life. The size of our life is the size of our heart. Some people sometimes say, I never got the opportunities. This is just not true. The size of our life is the size of our heart. With more heart, you get much more power and endurance. And then life cannot defeat you no matter what it offers up to you. With the open heart, there are no reservations. There's no balance between for me and for others. And statements such as, surely you have to look after yourself 
You have to have a balance. These will not arise. They will disappear from your vocabulary. Take care of the world, and the world takes care of you. The heart is then always turned outwards, and at the same time never forgets that which resides in the hearts of all. Then nothing is for me. There is no time for myself. Any time spent caring for me is so only as to be able to help others better, like a mother would keep herself healthy so she could better care for the child. Then our hearts would be filled with love and its many forms, such as generosity, magnanimity, purity, fearlessness, and absence of anger, greed, and jealousy, etc. It'll be non-judgmental. You'll be able to meet everybody as yourself, and it will emanate peace and contentment, so people will enjoy your company. Then you will enjoy, such as the great have enjoyed, you will enjoy the acceptance of Socrates, who, having been condemned falsely to death, said the following. Wherefore, O judges, be of good cheer about death, and know of a certainty that no evil can happen to a good man, either in life or after death. He and his are not neglected by the gods, nor has my own approaching end happened by mere chance. But I see clearly that the time had arrived when it was better for me to die and be released from trouble. Wherefore the oracle gave no sign. For this reason also I am not angry with my condemners or with my accusers. They have done me no harm, although they did not mean to do me any good. And for this I may gently blame them. The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways, I to die and you to live. Which is better, God only knows. Or maybe we could enjoy the same purity of surrender as Our Lady on being told that she was to bear the Saviour of the world. And she simply said, be it unto me according to thy word. Or the forgiveness of Jesus when ascending the cross and he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So, how are our hearts to grow or open up or become pure? Well, Sri Shankaracharya, the man that the school went to and put all its questions to, a sage from India, he said, knowledge of truth is like a diamond which needs a suitable object to be placed and this formal object must be pure, valuable and beautiful. And you'll notice this, they don't put diamonds into lead rings. Diamonds are put into gold. Only gold is worthy of holding a diamond. So how are our hearts to become pure 
valuable and beautiful. Well, the first practical thing that we can do is we can learn to let go. Our hearts are naturally pure. They become impure because of what we store in them. What is stored in the heart is what we are attached to or identified with. So the need is to be detached, to let go what we have become attached to. And again, in the words of Jesus, to become passers-by. That as each day ends, it also ends in our heart. When we let go, then we will experience immense relief as the burden of life is put down. To remain detached, we need to accept life, all of it, not look forward to the good and try to avoid the bad, but welcome all of life. The second factor which will help our hearts to open or purify is to use reason or intellect to protect the heart. So one should examine the contents of one's heart and that which is a burden to the heart, remove it from the heart just as you would remove a thorn from your foot. Do not store poison in the heart. When the heart is moved to misery, apply reason. Use reason to restrain the heart from habitual negative emotions. You can put questions to the heart. So let's say the heart is full of anger. You can say, who is benefiting from this anger? And on realization that there is nobody benefiting, the anger will be put down. Or you can say, what desire is being frustrated now? And is it reasonable? Is it reasonable to demand that there be no other car on the road when you're trying to get somewhere and you've left the house too late? Or you can put this fundamental principle, the fruit of negative feelings is endless misery and suffering. When reason is applied to the heart, the heart steadies. The heart needs to be still and steady. Otherwise, its energies are dissipated. Reason helps to provide this stillness and steadiness in the heart. There is a real need to nourish our hearts with reason so that the emotional charge can be stabilized and channeled. The third factor that one can undertake in order to purify the heart is you can make one decision. And if you can make this decision, it will change your life. Again, the Shankaracharya says of this decision, he says, release from misery comes from true knowledge, which takes no account of riches or poverty, sickness or health. Discrimination is the key. Through it, one can see one's own desires for things one lacks. And one can also see that those who have the things one covets are not happy. 
neither happiness nor misery dwell in things, but in one's own decision, made through discrimination, that acquisition of worldly things will bring neither. Following that decision, detachment comes releasing from misery and bringing happiness. So with one decision, misery comes to an end. With this decision, there will be freedom and the burdens of the heart will fall away. At any point in time, when the heart is moved by desire, you will find there is the belief at that time that this will make you happy. This is why it has the power to dominate you. So see if you can make this decision, because as was said, it will change your life. And if I can give you an example of it. I think about 13 or 14 years ago, I had this romantic notion that if I could earn a vast sum of money, I could then retire and dedicate myself to helping the world. Now notice the sequence of the events. I first of all had to accumulate this vast sum of money and then having got that, then I would be generous beyond compare with my time and energies to help the world. So I saw a piece of property with 20 acres. It was zoned for one house to the acre and it was completely and utterly undervalued. So I persuaded a bank to give me 100% finance. I didn't put up one penny. I said, give me all the money and I'll invest it in this and I'll make a lot of money. So they were persuaded by the force of the argument and they gave me the money and I bought this land. And it was zoned one to the acre, so all I had to do was to apply for one house to the acre. So I applied and got turned down. And I applied again and got turned down. And then there was all sorts of skullduggery and all sorts of things which I wouldn't participate in. And the borrowings were now increasing. And then we had the currency crisis and the interest rates went up to 40%, if you remember that. And now there was more and more interest applying to this loan, so I was owing vast sums of money. And years had passed by now, and this ginormous lump of money that I was going to live off for the rest of my life was nowhere in sight. And basically, I was living at the pleasure of the bank. So at any stage they wanted to take the car, the house, the dog, anything, they could take it. But they were very honorable in their dealings with me, and they didn't take it. So six years have passed by at this stage now. Having had sort of pure brown hair, was now a gray-haired and wrinkled man. <laughs> I had applied for a variation on the planning permission. And there was great hope that this time they were going to give me. It was all within the zoning. I wasn't asking for anything extra. And I'm driving home, and I'm driving through the country, and I get a phone call to be told they've turned it down. So, so I pull my car into the side of the road with a heavy heart. Now, I'm going to say it as I said it, so I have to be forgiven. I looked up to heaven, and I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> would you just give me the planning permission? <laughs> now, I think it was the most sincere prayer that I have ever made. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
whatever happened, there was a magic moment because immediately on saying this with unbelievable intensity, the whole being fell absolutely still, completely and utterly still. And a question arose in the mind. There's a question to me, not a question by me, but a question to me. And the question was, why do you want the planning permission? And I said, so that I can be at peace. And then another question was presented to me in the mind. Why don't you take the peace now? So I took the peace now. And it never burdened me again. Now, for the sentimental amongst you who are worried that I'm about to be carted off to the paupers <laughs> prison, three years later, the planning commission did come true and the banks were repaid and all of these sort of things. So there was a happy ending from that point of view. But the burden went when there was a realization that planning permissions do not bring peace. You can have peace now. So this is the decision that the Shankaracharya is encouraging. With it, misery is dissolved. The fourth factor, which will help our hearts to grow or open, is you actually replace the contents of your heart consciously. So you replace impure emotions with pure emotions. When meanness arises in the heart, replace it consciously with generosity. When anger arises, replace it consciously with equanimity. When hate arises, replace it consciously with love. And when criticism arises, replace it consciously with praise. As Shakespeare said, you assume a virtue if you have it not. The fifth factor is to use speech to purify the heart. Speak the truth and resolve to have nothing to do with untruth and speak all of the truth. You know sometimes that you're very burdened and you want to speak to someone and you say what it is and you say it all and they simply listen. They don't give you any advice and there's no response from them. But you feel so much better. So speak the contents of your heart. Do not harbour unresolved issues and old hurts and fears. Now this is not an invitation to draw up a list of complaints and demands that you may have gathered over the years. It's an invitation to express. Just as if you had eaten something poisonous, there's a need to vomit it up. Learn to give praise and not criticism. Express your gratitude. Always express it. Be grateful to God. Be grateful to your husband or wife. Be grateful to your children. Be grateful to the shop assistant. When is the last time that you've thanked your children for being members of your family? The sixth factor is discipline your desires. There's threefold aspect to this, so hear these words carefully. Fulfill only those desires which relate to the present, which it is in your power to fulfill, and which the fulfillment of does not harm others.
this gives a natural measure to desire. The fulfillment of other people's rights by our service and the renunciation of our own so-called rights is the first step to desirelessness. So here, for the pleasure of the speaker, you could all please me greatly right now. So speak for the pleasure of the listener, not because you want to say something. And meet for the pleasure of the other. One of the great ways to put our desires under discipline is to cease from contemplating them, thinking about them all the time. Contemplating your desires is worse than fulfilling them. You can contemplate or dream about your desires many more times than you can experience them. If you desire to repeat the experience, you will contemplate the desire. So do not enjoy and pass on. And the last factor is meditation. The heart goes out to meet the needs of the world and energy is used. And this energy needs to be replaced or replenished. To replenish the energy, one must go inside. All the energy of the individual could be made unlimited if the direction of the individual is turned inside. The greatest and simplest way to really go inside is meditation. If one meditates, one goes deep within the self, and then one comes out with extra love and affection and also resolution. This love expands first to meet the needs of the family, then to the nation itself, then to humanity, and then to the universe. Now, to finish, the natural state of the heart is very much like a deep ocean in which the lower levels remain undisturbed while the surface is in turmoil. Reflections on the natural heart come and go with the movement of events and nothing is preserved for the next round of reflection. So the natural state of the heart is like a screen reflecting everything and yet remaining without imprints. It's like the tears of a child. Children can cry with a far greater intensity than you and I do. But 30 seconds after they finish crying, you can't tell that they have been crying. When you and I cry for days afterwards, people are asking you, are you all right? Because it leaves an imprint. In this pure state of the heart, you will be unmoved by the moving. When people come to you, you will give them a seat in your heart and you will enjoy communion with them. Your life will then be an expression of not my will, but thy will. And you will enjoy pure feelings, express them in true words, and then do exactly as you say. So you will then be true to yourself. All of this is possible in the natural state of the heart. So, the message is to restore the heart to its natural state 
and truly enjoy your life. And that's it. So, thank you very much. So, are we ready to start? Who would like to ask a question? Or who first would like to ask a question? It's a lady there. Uh, what the question is sort of how much humor, uh, reasoning and humor relate to keeping the heart healthy in relationships uh, like this, you know, people being late and, you know, thinking negative thoughts rather than using your reason and then striking a chord of good humor when... You know, the wife is late. Reason comes from the intellect and humor fundamentally comes from the heart. What real humor does is it dissolves tensions or differences and people are united in the laughter or in the moment. There is humor which is mocking, which takes away from the dignity of the person or ridicules people because of apparent defects and things like that. That is not true humor. True humor unites. It doesn't make fun of somebody. It eliminates the differences and all are united in a sort of a, a lightness. So humor is absolutely excellent because, as I said, it releases tension. But you should never use humor to get out of a situation. Does that make sense? Sometimes you try and make something light. Well, if you've done wrong, it's a good idea to apologize. Even better to apologize unreservedly. If you want to add in a little bit of humor after that, well, then that's fine. But don't try and get out of responsibility with humor. So humor is exceptionally useful. Exceptionally so. So, thank you. Here, Morris. This gentleman. Thank you very much for an excellent lecture. There's an open heart for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is more a linguistic question. Yes. You mentioned the word aggregate, I think. You said yeah. these things. Arrogate. Arrogate to the heart. Yeah. So, I'd, I'd just like an explanation. Yes. The word arrogance and arrogate come from the same root. And arrogance is when you claim a quality to yourself. So to arrogate is to claim. To claim for yourself. Arrogance is the opposite to humility. And the humble person claims nothing. So, as I said, to arrogate is to claim for oneself. It's like if you do crack a joke, if immediately afterwards you say, I am the funniest person in the world, that is arrogating. <laughs> I won't arrogate. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You mentioned in your talk that in order to protect the heart, one must use intellect and reason. And it just brought to mind two very brief sayings that I had. First of all, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, there is a road from the eye to the heart that does not go through the intellect. And then Pascal said, the heart is its reasons that the reason knows not of. And I was just wondering, are these reasons of the heart and this road from the eye to the intellect as valid and valuable 
as those taken by the intellect and reason? And what were these guys trying to tell us? Yes, well, that's a, a very good question. Yes, they are as valid. So there is a knowledge of the heart. And your experience of it, when it does arise, is as if it has bypassed the mind, that you haven't used your mind. And if I give just a very simple example from my own experience, on the third date with my wife, she wasn't the wife at that stage, obviously, I knew this was the woman I was going to marry. And I also knew she was going to marry me. And I knew it in my heart. Now, if you'd asked me, how did you know, I couldn't explain how I knew. So the intellect was unable to explain this knowledge. It wasn't able to say the basic. And, and if somebody said, well, why this woman? Now, it's not that I had the biggest choice in the world, so I don't... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, uh, <laughs> but if somebody said, why this woman, as opposed to, say, somebody else, I was not able to say at that time. In fact, and I've said this before, ten years later, after we married, well, that's what it would have been, but eleven and a half years later, the intellect did discover why it was this woman that I wished to spend all my days with. The mind is much slower. Now, other people's minds do not have to be as slow as mine, but it took that length of time. And the mind is slower. It needs to work it out. Things need to stand to reason. Whereas the heart simply knows. Because the heart is quicker than the mind, because the heart can know just like that, it can also make mistakes quicker. And the mind or the intellect comes in to protect it. As those quotes reveal, there are times when knowledge simply arises. Not having gone through the intellect. The advantage of the intellect is that where knowledge arises in the heart, not having gone through the intellect, it can be easier to cause a doubt with regard to the veracity of that knowledge. Whereas if reason has lent its support to it and says it stands to reason, that gives it a base and it doesn't move from that. So that's the advantage of the reason, that it provides a solid base to knowledge which arises purely in the heart. Every human being has a heart and an intellect and the idea is for them to work together. There shouldn't be a tug of war between the intellect and the heart. The Shankaracharya has a magnificent statement about this. He says, Those who have love in their hearts and reason in their minds feed on bliss. But those whose heart says one thing and the mind another feed on pleasure and pain, for they have not realized love nor unity. So it's not a bad diet to feed on bliss. The whole purpose of marriage is this. Bring man and woman together, to bring reason and love together. So you get the complete human being, not a gender. Not even two genders, but the two becoming one. So that's, I don't, does that help? Right, thank you. Yes, anybody else? You seem to imply that religion is the source of this reality that you speak about. 
Could the same uh, meanings that you're talking about apply to an, an agnostic? Yes. But he would have to approach it differently. So, if speaking to a religious person, you might say to them, well, be devoted to God or give your heart to God. To agnostic, you would say, give your heart to the universe for the welfare of all. The agnostic does not deny the existence of fellow human beings and plants and uh, the earth and the creation. So, to have an open heart, it doesn't have to be dedicated to God. But it does have to be dedicated to something other than me. Well, I think the, <clears throat> I'm an agnostic. The atheist says there's no God, and the religious person believes there is a God. I think the agnostic is accused of sitting on the fence. Now, I think sitting on the fence means that you simply ask questions for your life, during your life. It's not a matter of believing in something. It's a matter of journeying and asking the questions. Yes, well, what philosophy would say to a person who asks questions, philosophy would not refer to such a person as an agnostic. They would refer to such a person as an inquirer. And that is an extremely healthy state for the human being to live in, to be an inquirer. Because it is very easy to come to answers and then solidify them and harden them in the mind and hold them and never look again. So the real key to life is to be ever an inquirer, ever open to increased understanding or unfolding knowledge. But does the person who believes in, in a particular religion yes. fit into this category? I mean, if you believe in a particular religion, you have, in a sense, stopped inquiring. Well, that would be unfortunate. It's not necessary to stop inquiring just because you belong to a particular religion. It may be possible that you don't understand it fully. So you can inquire, what does it mean to love your enemies and do good to them that despise you? What does that actually mean in practice? So you could claim to be a Christian or you could be a Christian, but that does not mean that you have full understanding. So the inquiry goes on. I can see the value in the diminishing of the ego, as yeah. you outline it. It's just that I wanted to know, did you think that this also applies to the agnostic? So? Oh, absolutely. Yes. To the agnostic and the atheist. And if there was a dog in the audience, it would also apply to him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, anybody else? Yes, there's a lady here. I just want to ask you about human suffering and how that plays a part or does it play a part in bringing people closer to like God or a pure heart or moving people away from it. You mean if you are the witness of suffering or if you are the sufferer or witness. both? Both, I suppose. All right, okay. Well, we'll just take the second one first. If you take suffering, suffering doesn't have to be a disadvantage. Now, this does not mean that you should rush from this room at the end of this question and answer and say, you know, where can I find a bit of suffering, right? But if it does befall you, it does not have to be a disadvantage. What suffering teaches you, or what it can teach you, is that this creation does not yield full and permanent happiness. So, if you dedicate your happiness to a person or a thing or whatever, and that is removed from you, it's a wake-up call 
that you are dedicating your life to something limited. So suffering can be a wake-up call. It can show you an error in how you're living your life. So one should always make good use of suffering. And you can make good use of suffering because it is teaching you something. It's telling you something. Just like a pain in your chest is telling you something. And it's, in a way, demanding action, corrective action. So when there's a pain in the heart, it's telling you something needs to change. So that's the first thing. The second thing, say others are suffering, and there's an awareness of this suffering. If we call it the benefit of that, which is maybe a harsh way of putting it, but the benefit of that is that it produces a natural response in the human being of compassion. So it is natural for the human being to be compassionate. So it is natural that when you see others in suffering, to wish to relieve them of that suffering. And this takes you out of yourself and opens you out to a bigger world. Now, what is very important is that the suffering of others does not destroy you or else we'd be left with the suffering and nobody to help them. If people go into counselling work or charitable work or anywhere where you're providing a service to the needy, you really have to be careful about your heart. You give your heart fully to the situation, but you must make sure that the suffering does not destroy your heart. And the way the Shankaracharya put it is that the truly compassionate being, the one who's compassionate under wisdom, removes the suffering of the other without becoming miserable himself or herself. The one who is compassionate under ignorance is moved to misery by the misery of the other. So now you've got two miserable people. So the key is to be unmoved. And unmoved does not mean that you are cold-hearted. It means that there is only love in your heart. That's all. And so then you are in the best position to help others. Again, I've told this story before, and I can't remember which child it was, but let's say it was the third child, and I was there at the birth. We're now at the crunch moment when the baby is about to appear, and as I understand it, this is the maximum pain point as well. So my wife is screaming, not obscenities, but she's screaming certain things anyway. And my attention was drawn to the two nurses who were caring for her. And one of them said, get a grip on yourself, Mrs. Mulhall. And I thought, what a remarkably brave woman that nurse is. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, yeah. uh, so, so I, ever since then I've donated to the nurse's party every Christmas. But anyway, that's what she said. You know, my wife was very moved by the pain, which is all absolutely understandable. But this nurse was totally unmoved by this. And she was not going to be distracted by the statements of my wife from the need of the attention to the whole birth process. What was required here was that a baby be born healthily and that a mother survive the event, right? <laughs> That's what was required. And they did not move. I mean, they were stunningly good. I just could not get over how detached and, if you want to call it professional, they were. But they weren't cold. There was joy on their face when the baby was born. So that's the key. The key is that your heart is not moved in a way 
that your capacity to help the other is reduced. So I don't know, does that answer the, the question? Though? Okay, very good. Yes, anybody else? Spengler in his book, The Decline of the West, said one of the major problems of modern society, as he saw it, was the development of a mass society, a society based on mass consciousness. Do you think meditating through the heart uh, helps one become an individual in a mass society? Yes, well it has two effects which initially might appear to be opposite. What meditation does is makes you truly universal and at the same time unique. Now these appear to be opposites but they're not opposites. For example, we often say about great men and women that they were special. So that you might say that Mozart was a great composer and that he was special. But the fact of the matter is Mozart's music is to a large degree universal. That's why so many people enjoy it. What meditation does is allows you to connect with the universal. So that would be like connecting with a central generating station. So that your being is powered. But then since it must come through your heart, mind and body, it must take up a particular form. So as Mozart would have composed great music and Shakespeare, great drama, and Leonardo da Vinci, great painting. What will happen is, if you meditate, is that you will enjoy immense consciousness available to the being, but it will uniquely express itself. So you won't become somebody else and you won't disappear into the crowd. Uh, you will be like, in a way, like a flower is in a garden, surrounded by millions of other flowers, but none lose their separate identity. So that's what meditation allows. It allows, in a way, it allows for true individuality. And the way it is phrased in philosophy, it allows for the application of the universal to the particular. The application of the universal to the particular. So, say you were a father and you had two children and they both did the same bad deed and both required correction. And you love both of them, so that's the universal aspect. There is love and love needs to be applied to this situation so that the children don't do it again but you won't treat them the same. You will acknowledge the uniqueness of each child and treat them individually. And that is the application of the universal to the particular. And this is what real wisdom is. So again, to take it in a historical context, when Hitler went to war, it was necessary for the Allies to stand against this evil. And so it was necessary to defeat Germany or to weaken it and ultimately defeat it. And that was loving thy neighbour as thyself, including the Germans. But having defeated the Germans, and having removed this evil power, what was now necessary was to restore Germany to its former glory. So there was tremendous funding and all of this sort of stuff. That was also love thy neighbour as thyself. So love thy neighbour as thyself is a universal concept, but gets applied to the particular. And how is it applied to the particular will be determined by the particular. Has that answered? 
Meditation is not the only factor, but things like meditation allow the real being to emerge in all its glory. For example, each one of us in this room has a heart that has the capacity to love the entire universe. There is no limit to the love that is available in our hearts. What we do, unfortunately, is we decide to love one man or one woman and a couple of children, and maybe a dog. And so we take this amazing instrument with this colossal capacity and we apply it to such a small circle. And then we wonder why there isn't satisfaction in life. I've used this example before in other talks, but just to show that the heart is limitless. Again, if you are married and a child is born into your family, you will give all your father's love to that child. And then let's say another child is born into that family. You don't have to remove half the love from the first child. And say, there's 50% each now. If that was the basis, the eldest child would always resent the ones that came subsequent. What happens when the second child comes is you don't reduce your love for the first child one jot. The love in the heart naturally expands to meet the second one and the third one. And if you're either blessed or punished with another 17, it will naturally expand. The interesting thing is that it can expand to everybody. It doesn't have to be just people that you're involved in the birth process. It can be every human being, and then it can be every creature, and every plant. It can be the entire universe. There is no limit. And the stunning thing is this, that everything that you love, if it is true love, brings you happiness. So why not love everything so you can have all happiness? Why try and squeeze out total and complete happiness out of a few people and a few objects? Why not get it from everything? That's what an open heart is. So, I don't know if that answers it. Okay. Yes, anybody else? Yes, this universal goodness you talk about seems to to leave out the fact that evil also does exist. Does evil exist as a, merely as a misbehavior of humans, under an ethical misbehavior, or is it some psychic thing out there? I mean, what is evil? I mean, can goodness exist without evil? Can night exist without day? Well, I'll make it mysterious and religious, all right? <laughs> uh, the good with a small g cannot exist without evil. But there is something before good and evil, which is truth itself. And that can exist without good and evil. And if I can give an example, again, it's a religious example, but it gives you a sense of it. It's in all traditions, but it's clearly put in the Christian tradition, that there was a time in the Garden of Eden where man was perfectly free and perfectly happy. But then he wished to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, sometimes we think that man wanted to eat of the tree of knowledge of evil. But what is very interesting is he wanted to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And having eaten that, he then was obliged to suffer 
Now, suffer the effects of goodness and suffer the effects of evil. That's how the story goes. There is an absolutely clear indication in this story that before participating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was no good and evil for man. Now, what was there? Was he asleep? Or is there something before good and evil? And what the wise have said is that before good and evil, there is truth. Or love at its highest level. Or knowledge at its highest level. And at that level, there is no good or evil. You get a sense of it. Now, only a sense of it. This is not a proof. In the very young child. When a child plucks the wings of a little fly or removes the legs from a spider one by one and watches it walk around in a circle initially and then walk no more, this is not an evil act by the child. Now, if you were to do it, unless you have the nature of a child, there would be evil. So there is a point in time when there is neither goodness nor evil in the child. It is pure, perfect, and complete. And if your heart's open, you will go back to that natural state, beyond good and evil. You will see neither again. Again, if I take it from the Christian tradition, you will just be like Jesus. You won't see the prostitute. And you won't see the adulteress. And you won't see the tax collector. And you won't see the publican. You'll see yourself everywhere. Beyond all good and evil. Sorry, can I interrupt again? If evil is then merely connected with intent, as Kant said, a cloud is not evil because it rains on people, that there yes. has to be intent. But if you keep on increasing and increasing these definitions of reality in relation to what we think, you're moving towards solicitism, where we just exist in our own head, which is a dangerous philosophy. Absolutely. Well, I wouldn't live there if I was you. Mm. And I don't think you'll get anybody to accompany you either. Well, it's a, it's, it's a step um, towards madness. Thinking causes you to live in your head. Knowledge gets you out of your head. When knowledge arises in the mind, the mind becomes still. And the heart becomes still. And then you're out of it. But with thinking or concepts or any of these things, you're in your head. To give you an example, when a man or a woman is learning to drive a car, they have concepts or they have information. And a lot of the driving is actually in your heart or in your mind. There you are on your first driving lesson. And the heart is pounding away and the mind is saying, what do I do? And most of the driving is in your heart and in your mind. And this is why it's exhausting. After about 500 yards, you say, that's enough for me today. I can't go on anymore. Now, when that information, true practice, turns into real understanding, then the mind falls still. And there's just driving. Not driving in the mind. There's just driving. Knowledge operates, and you get from A to B. And you can travel for 500 miles, and it's not tiring anymore. So... If this remains as mere conversation, yes, you will end up living in your head. If it is put into practice and verified and naturalized, then you get out of your head. This is the natural state. 
I just wondered if this concept of being entering this perfect meditation, is it not an attempt to get back into the security of the womb? No. There is no security in the womb. We peace before we were born, that peace of having food and not having to struggle and not having to be conscious. Are you sure that meditation is not an attempt to get back there? Well, I have meditated for 27 years, and the desire to re-enter the womb has never arisen. <laughs> it's not within my experience, and I've never heard anybody say, you know, I felt this sort of womb-like desire arising. What happens in the deepest of meditation, or when the heart is open, is there is complete satisfaction in one's own existence. That's all. You are happy where you are, as you are. In fact, you love yourself right now. And you love everybody else. So, that's my experience in life. Yes, anybody else? Yes. This is a remarkable talk, by the way. Normally when you talk about the heart, men shut up and say, I don't know what he's going on about. And normally the ladies don't stop asking questions. So we either have, something's happened, something's in the tea, I reckon. <laughs> what would you like to ask? I suppose related to what you've just said, this heart that you, you talk about, obviously, is you can't transplant it. And I think perhaps there's an unfortunate association, med medical reference to the pulsating organ within your chest. Yes. With heart, I think that it gets kind of, the heart you talk about gets associated with that. Uh, yes. And for that reason, maybe it's not fully understood at a human level. Yes. You know, that maybe called a gadget in your chest a pump or something might give the other heart that you talk about greater understanding because I think there is a massive association with heart with that in your chest and so on. I just thought, I'd just like to ask what you, you think about that. The physical heart can reflect the state of the spiritual heart. So when there is agitation in the true heart, the physical heart will beat faster. And when there is peace and stillness, the physical heart does reflect that. There's no reason for somebody to think of this red pulsating object You can say, this is the heart of the matter, and everybody knows what you're talking about. And when you say, I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart, people know what you're referring to. We're living in a very intellectual age. This is the end of the Renaissance. So the scientific age dominates now. And this beautiful... Simplicity of the heart is not really given true credence anymore. Unless the senses can verify it, we doubt it. I know a man who was working over in Canada and he looked across the room at a party and he saw a woman he said, I'm going to marry that woman. And they got married three weeks later. And they've been married ever since and from all external observation they seem to be a very happy couple. Sometimes when I tell that story to people, they say, God, what a risky thing to do. As if your mind could tell you who to marry. What do you have to do? Like, well, 
His name is Simon. I sort of like that. That's very good. Okay. Uh, architect. Yes, very, very good. Yes, all right. He's insanely rich and insanely generous. You cannot prove to yourself why you should marry someone. The mind can't do that. And because of this over-domination of the intellect, it discounts the knowledge of the heart. I can remember we were going to move to our second house. I would do the looking, the initial looking, the intellectual looking. So I'd say, now, this is our price range. These are the neighborhoods that I'm willing to share my humanity with. And I would look, and I would count bedrooms. I would, you know, look at the four bedrooms, fine. No jacuzzi, oh, that's a pity. All of that sort of stuff, you see? You know, I said, well, if we look at these four houses, and I would sort of come with an intellectual measuring tape, and I would see how long the back garden is. Now, sometimes my wife, we'd drive up to the house, and she'd say, no. I'd say, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, we haven't seen it yet. And I would go through this unbelievable process. Well, the dining room is good, but the sitting room's a bit small. However, maybe if we put a conservatory on the back, that would extend it out that way. And in the end, I'd have to admit that what she knew, if you want to call it intuitively, or from the heart, I eventually arrived at. But I would dismiss it. Now, I have learned over the years not to dismiss what my wife knows. <laughs> and if I may say so, it is just superb because she has more natural access to this knowledge of the heart than I do. And it is stunningly good when you bring, if you want to call this intellectual approach, and this knowledge of the heart together. It is just so complete and comprehensive. It's very, very important that the heart is elevated. It is the organ which powers the whole being. Not the physical organ. The organ which powers the whole being. The purpose of the mind is to protect the heart. That's what it does. So if you were with somebody and they were concerned about something, what you'll find is you'll engage in conversation with them to restore stability in the heart. That's what you're always trying to do. Just to get the heart back to its natural state. And that's the purpose of the mind. The purpose is not to ignore the heart at all. The purpose of the intellect, in a way, is to serve the heart. And it's just such a pity that it has been, in a way, demoted. Because its knowledge is beyond the knowledge of the mind, and certainly beyond the knowledge of the senses. And in this scientific age, we're trying to explain away love by chemical reactions and all these dreadful things. But there is that amazingly pure knowledge which arises in the pure heart. And it absolutely needs to be honoured. So. Thank you very much. Yes. Would you like to ask any more questions? Yes, there's a lady here. I just wanted to ask about your views on pacifism. Well, it's incomplete. It has a great place 
in the sense, as Gandhi proved and others have proved, the path of nonviolence is stunning in its effectiveness. But you have to be a great, great, great man or woman to practice nonviolence. You cannot allow the creation to become a farce. So, as a last resort, righteousness must be upheld. Famous story from the East, and it's in an epic tale called the Mahabharata. And there's a famous battle scene called the Battle of Kurukshetra. And in this battle scene, a warrior called Arjuna, who was the greatest warrior of his time, is lined up with his army. And when Arjuna looks across the battlefield, he sees that in the far side are his cousins and his former teacher. And he's overcome and says, I cannot fight. I cannot kill my own. His charioteer was Krishna, who would be, in Eastern terms, the equivalent of Christ. Krishna instructs him to fight. But what is necessary to understand the entire story? Everything was tried to bring about peace. And Arjuna and his brothers had been deprived of a kingdom, and they offered to abandon all of their kingdom except five villages. So that would have been a tiny little bit, which they would retain for their own people if the others would declare peace. And the others refused, said, you can have nothing. And Krishna then says, when it gets to that point, then you have to stand against evil so that it doesn't rule. What is absolutely important is, if I put it like this, that you always, in a way, be a pacifist. In other words, you must always be at peace in your heart. So, if you were a soldier in the Second World War, it is invalid to hate the enemy. That is never valid. What you're trying to do is restore peace. That's all. You never hate the other. Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the school, gave a magnificent example once. He said, when you see a man beating a horse, stop the man beating the horse for the man's sake. Would you like to have that in your heart, that you had beaten horses? Wouldn't it have been marvellous if somebody had stopped you from doing it? Saved you from that? So, when you fight, in the case of Germany or whatever, you fight to stop them committing evil so they will not bear those evil deeds in their hearts. So it's not out of hatred for them. It is actually out of love for all of mankind. So what is important is that you never have an enemy. But the actions may still involve taking up a gun and firing it but only as a last resort. I don't know if that helps. All right. I think there was a gentleman. Yes, just to your right. Just going back to the story of buying your house and your wife and her intuition, would you agree that when you look at the state of the world today that the intellect does rule and the yes. heart is, is more or less ignored? Absolutely. You know, it has really been reduced to a sort of, a, in a way, a gender war. You get all these sort of arguments, should ladies rule the world as opposed to men rule the world? It's not like that. It's not an either-or situation. What we need is real human beings. 
the male gender is a limited version of the human being. It's a particular version. It only takes some of the qualities of humanity. And the female gender is also. And it only takes some of the qualities of the entire humanity. A man, male or female, is capable of transcending his or her own gender. So what is required, as the Shankaracharya said, is for people to have reason in their minds and love in their hearts. And then it makes no difference whether it's a female form or a male form. When you get a male and a female, and, and they're living at the level of male and female, it's pretty handy for them to get married because they complete each other. By coming together, they complete each other. But the further goal is to become whole and complete oneself, to transcend one's own gender. And one does this by the unity of reason and love. And what you'll find is that as love purifies, the reason will grow stronger. And as reason grows stronger, the love will purify. They're not at war with each other, they assist each other. Would you agree that one of the results of that so-called war would be when you look at the rate of divorce in the Western world? Absolutely. The purpose of marriage is to remove the distinction between male and female. That's its purpose. You're not meant to have a sort of a twin-track approach. You know, where you've got this male going down the left-hand side and a female on the right-hand side. The idea is that your partner completes you. Just so many times, what my wife has brought to the situation has just been stunning. I could still be there and I wouldn't have worked it out. Again, I'm going to finish with a humorous story, which I've told many times, but it just shows you the limit of the so-called male intellect and the magnificence of the intuitional knowledge of the heart. This is many, many years ago, and there were two children at the time. And let's say the boy was about three or four. And it was a particularly good summer. My wife takes a very good color, so she was as brown as a berry. And I was working away really hard to provide income for the family. So I was like this white, emaciated ghost and she was looking stunningly beautiful. There was a sort of a resentment here, very innocent resentment, that she had got the easier half of human existence looking after these two little rats while I worked away in the hard and evil commercial world. Well, it's about mid-July or something like this, and I read in the paper that the weather is going to be very good this weekend. I said, right, this is my chance. I'm going to get brown this weekend. I really would much prefer to have got brown on my own. But I couldn't think of anything, so it had to be a sort of a communal browning affair. Uh, so I said to my wife, look, we should go to the beach. It would be wonderful for the family, right? But the inner content of the heart was me. Me was going to get brown. Anyway. So we drove down to a place called British Bay. This is just horrendous, but anyway, I can remember distinctly grabbing my towel and leaving her with the two children and 
18 teddies and changes and nappies and all sorts of everything. And I can remember striding ahead and sort of justifying that I was going to find a good spot for the family. And, you know, she was sort of going behind with the, the two children right, and all the goodies. So I found this good spot and I cast my towel on it and she cast her towel very close to mine. I could not say to her, I don't want you that close to me. So I sort of picked it up and shook it a bit, but as I put it down again, there was a much bigger gap. <laughs> right? Because I just want to get brown on my own. All right? Now, so I oil this white emaciated frame and lie myself down on this towel. And within 30 seconds, a handful of sand is cast over the entire body by this little male offspring. And I leapt up. And I said, you're a very bold boy. Daddy's exhausted and he's just trying to get one <laughs> afternoon. And then I turned to my wife and I said, for God's sake, can you not keep him under control? You see? Well, I close my eyes and rest in peace here. So I scraped off this sand, you know, as much as you can, and closed my eyes, and another handful of sand <laughs> was strong. So I got up and uh, I gave him a clip across the ear, and I said, you're an absolute disgrace, you see? My wife looked at me with this ever-increasing patience, as she's had to develop over the years, and she looked at me and she said, do you not see that he just wants to play with you? Now, my so-called intellect, that's even too strong a term, my so-called intellect had evaluated the situation that I had a brat on my hands who consciously and maliciously was trying to disturb or destroy the happiness of his tired old father, right? And that he was being badly behaved. Now, that's how I had evaluated the situation. What she saw was a son who wanted to play with his father. The knowledge of the heart is stunning. It completes everything. One should always listen to it. You'll find an amazing thing happen. You'll find, just as I found that time when I was begging for my planning permission, you'll find at times when you really, really appeal to the heart. Knowledge arises that comes from where you know not. And it is perfect. It never fails you. And it is never to your advantage and to somebody else's disadvantage. It is always complete in that it serves everybody. And it gives you a certainty that you don't enjoy with that sort of lower knowledge. So, I shall leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much.